<clears throat> in a few weeks, I will be um, going on my sabbatical, and one of the things I hope to do as I personally visit uh, England, uh, which is uh, where I spent a lot of time growing up, is to, to visit with one of my former teachers who had a huge impact on me. His name is Gary Palmer, <clears throat> and he taught design of technology and drafting. I can blame him for my really bad handwriting because I write in capitals. Um, but one of the things he did, though, was he gave me a compelling example of what it means to love those that are under your care. As a teacher, uh, not only was he a wonderful man in the classroom, but he was a wonderful man outside of the classroom staying late so we could work on projects together. And sometimes even uh, he was the one who was willing to, to be there on the weekend if there were certain outings that were taking place. And he, he was one of those teachers that you knew was not as concerned about the academics, although he was, but he was most concerned about you. And he had a compelling uh, impact on my life. And I, looking back, although he's not a believer, God used him to model for me what it means to love others and how that should be fleshed out. And as we come to our text this morning, the Apostle Paul wants to give us a compelling example of what the mind of Christ looks like in the church. And so this morning, my proposition is simply this, a compelling example that challenges us to live out the mind of Christ in the context of the local church. This is going to be a compelling example. We're not just going to go through, and Paul's not just saying, well, here's something nice for you to look at. No, he's giving it to us to move us to action. He's giving it to us to show us what it looks like, not just for individuals to have the mind of Christ, but for the church to have the mind of Christ together. And um, so there's a, there's a challenge taking place. There's a compelling that is taking place. Now, if you remember, the mind of Christ is described for us as unity through humility fueled by the example of Christ. It's an attitude of selfless humility that bears fruit in unity among the body of Christ. It's further explained in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, as putting others before yourself being humble, and thinking about the interests of others, not just your own. And if you remember, it's not saying scrap your own interests. It's saying you have your own interests, but don't just be thinking about them. Think about others also. And then, of course, it's illustrated for us by pointing us to the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, how he put us before himself, how he humbled himself to die for us. Such selfless humility doesn't mean that we're doormats to other people. It doesn't mean we place ourselves in bondage to them. But it does mean that we live our lives thinking and considering others and the implication of our words, our thoughts, and our actions on the lives of others. Selfishness would say, I do what I want when I want regardless of how it will affect others. Humility says there are some things I want or some things I want to do, but how it will affect others is important to me. 
It thinks of others. It considers others. It loves others. And this morning, uh, we were reminded by Ed what, what Dennis spoke about last week. But if you remember in his sermon, here is one of the things he, he said. If, if the example of Christ is too lofty for us, he's going to give us earthly human examples. And he did that with Timothy. And he does that again today with Epaphroditus. And although Epaphroditus is the, I want to say, the central character in this passage, he's not the only person who is exhibiting the mind of Christ. Because the Apostle Paul is doing that. He's putting others before himself. Epaphroditus is certainly going to be doing that. He's putting others before himself. And the Philippian church are going to be challenged to do that by the Apostle Paul. So just by means of structure, so you can see where we're going, you can see this paragraph in the way that Paul has laid it out. There's really two sections. The first section is Paul sending Epaphroditus. He's, he's giving reasons why he's sending him, but he is sending them. In those verses 25 through 28, and you'll see the word send in verse 25 and in verse 28 that kind of are a top and tail to the section. And then verses 29 and 30 are Paul really, or the, the Philippian church, receiving Epaphroditus. And there's issues and concerns even in that. So we will see the mind of Christ in Paul throughout our text. We'll see it in the Philippian church at the end of our text. But we will see Epaphroditus and the mind of Christ in him in the heart of our text. So let's jump in right now to this first section, sending Epaphroditus. In fact, I was doing some studying this week about this passage, listening to, to someone speak on it, and it was interesting to me because he made note of, of, of going to kind of a workshop, kind of like a Simeon Trust workshop, and he assigned this passage to one gentleman, another pastor. And this pastor said, after it was assigned to him and he studied, he said, I would never preach this in my church. But friends, this is the word of God. And it seems kind of, mundane, he's just talking about coming and going and someone being ill, but this is something that is important for us. Paul is giving us an example here, and he says here, I thought it necessary. The apostle Paul says, there's something I've been pondering, there's something I've been thinking about, and it is the fact that Epaphroditus has been sick. And so what Paul is now saying is he's thinking about the good for both Epaphroditus and the church in Philippi. And it's clear that he's aware of Epaphroditus and what he's thinking and what he's concerned about, and in particular, the hearts of the Philippian church that he's concerned about. So Paul isn't here being selfish. What's happening here is Paul is being very selfless considering the facts in this situation, he's saying, I think that it's necessary to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. Now, there's an important lesson here in leadership. I want you to think about this. The goal, the agenda, the profit margin, the bottom line should not take precedence over the worker, over the employee, over the servant, or the volunteer. The mind of Christ won't Allow it. And you can't read the book of Acts or the epistles of Paul and come to the conclusion that the apostle Paul is soft on the advancement of the gospel, can you? 
No, he's passionate about it. He's going to work hard for it. But at the same time, he cares for people. And here is a, a man sent to him by the church who has been sick, even to the point of almost dying. And he's concerned to make sure that he gets back to Philippi and there's reconciliation that takes place. He cares about others' struggles. He cares about their needs. He cares about their concerns. And what is overriding Paul's thinking is the mind of Christ. And what we have next are three descriptions of a Christian layman, Epaphroditus, who has the mind of Christ. Notice, first of all, he's a man of godly character. Very similar to the, to the resume that we heard of last week, now Paul is talking about Epaphroditus in particular. He's a man of godly character. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. And let's just take each one of those in turn. But in particular, three of them really are in relation to Paul, and two of them are in relation to the Philippian church. So when Paul's talking about his relationship with Epaphroditus, he calls him my brother. And friends, don't, again, pass over this. This is no small statement. The expression, my brother, reveals the affection Paul had for this man, for he was a fellow believer. But Paul and Epaphroditus were two very different people. Paul was a Jew. Epaphroditus is a Greek. But it is the grace of God that has brought them together and has made them part of the same family, the family of God. And friends, we know this is true wherever the gospel takes root. People are gathered from all walks of life, different nationalities, different ethnicities, different social statuses. Different vocations, education, hobbies, but God calls them together into his family. And here in particular, what we see is the various distinctions and barriers that had been broken by the gospel so that these men enjoyed a oneness in Christ. And I just reflected about that reality here at Gateway. And I thought to myself, you know what, there's all sorts of people here in this gathering here today. There's British, that's me, Ukrainian, Russian, Honduran, Mexican, African-American, Tanzanian, Filipino, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Indian, Italian, I probably missed some, Hawaiian. We're, we're a melting pot, and yet we're God's church. It's a beautiful reality. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are related together as family. And Paul calls Epaphroditus his brother. Secondly, he calls him my fellow worker. Not only were they brothers, but they were fellow workers together. Paul, in these words, is intentionally elevating Epaphroditus. They shared the hard work of ministry for the gospel, yet their roles were quite different. Paul was an apostle. He was an upfront guy. He was bold with the gospel. 
I mean, he could go into a town, he could preach the truth, and it didn't matter if he went to jail or anything like that stuff. Well, now he's in jail, he's in prison right now. Epaphroditus was a layman. He was, that's best that we can figure out. There's no indication that he was anything other than that. And that's not a problem, that's a good thing. He's a behind-the-scenes kind of layman. Yet Paul dignifies Epaphroditus by calling him a fellow worker. Friends, this is so important. Because oftentimes we think of gospel workers as people like myself, the people who stand behind the pulpit or are up on a platform or maybe in positions of, of, I would say, higher leadership in the church. But working for the gospel is for all those who are part of the body of Christ. Some lead us in worship and song. Some lead prayer groups and Bible studies. Others are concerned about security, the teaching of our children, or making sure you have a bulletin. Many serve the Lord simply by their participation in those many things and their contribution to certain discussions. They use their gifts, their homes, and their talents for the furtherance of the gospel. God calls all of them his workers. One has rightly said, Christians will be brothers and sisters forever, but they can only be fellow workers in the church for a few short years. <laughs> That's great that we're going to be brothers and sisters forever, but let's maximize the time that we have to work together for gospel advancement. That's what gospel participation is, working together with our unique gifts for the advancement of the gospel. Then he calls Epaphroditus, my fellow soldier. Not just a brother in Christ, not just a fellow worker, but a, a, a person who partners with him in battle for the sake of Christ. Paul had said to the, the Ephesian church, Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And earlier in this letter, I'm sure you remember, he uses the image of a shield wall, talking about believers standing together side by side, which was necessary for that shield wall, fighting the battle together. Paul once again elevates Epaphroditus in saying that he fought shoulder to shoulder with him. He was a fellow soldier. See, Paul is working hard with these descriptions of Epaphroditus to show him to be a battle-tested warrior who had been wounded in combat and was being sent home for rest. According to Paul, Epaphroditus had proven his worth and with distinction. Now, friends, do these descriptions describe you? Are you a brother or sister in Christ who's part of God's family? Are you working as a fellow worker in the context of the church, seeking to advance the gospel? Can you be called a fellow soldier who's dependable to stand shoulder to shoulder with your church family as we battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Again, these are not small statements, but should be part of our Christian resume is this what you're known for? I mean, 
Paul is saying, look, he is fully and completely united with me in ministry. Now, in relation to the Philippian church, he says two things. First of all, he describes Epaphroditus as your messenger. Now, Paul was a messenger, for the word messenger is the word apostolon, which is where we get the word apostle. Paul was a messenger for Christ. But here, Epaphroditus is described as a messenger, as an apostolon, with a a small a, so to speak. Why? Because he was an apostle, a messenger sent by the church in Philippi to serve Paul. Now, you can just imagine when Epaphroditus was chosen. I'm using my imagination, but I'm trying to put this together. The Philippian church had gathered a substantial offering, and they wanted to send it to Paul to help him while he's in prison. It's about a 700-mile journey. Any volunteers? On foot? Till you get to the boat, and then you get to Italy, and you travel to Rome. It's a long way. It's a long journey. A lot of difficulty. And I'm sure they gathered together, and they were saying, who can we trust to take this money 700 miles to Rome? How about Rufus? No, Rufus is a godly man, but he and his wife have just given birth to their first child. So it's probably not a good idea to ask him. How about Demetrius? No, he's also a good man, a godly man, but he is heavily involved with his father's business affairs right now. Well, you know, there's one man who has proven character, Epaphroditus. He's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Yes, he can be entrusted with our gift and can remain with Paul to minister to him on our behalf. Let's send Epaphroditus for this job. And I'm sure that before he left, just like any church would do in a situation like this, he they gathered around him, and there were probably other people that went with him on the journey, and the church came together, and they probably put their hands on them, and they prayed for them. This is no small thing that the church was doing for Paul. And they prayed for safety on the journey and prayed that he could be effective as he went to be the messenger. But secondly, as you see here, to be the minister to Paul's need. Here's the second thing. The word minister here conveys a priestly service that Epaphroditus had as he ministered to Paul's needs. It comes from the word liturgy. He was going to go there to assist and to help and to be a worker for Paul in his situation. So these are the things that are taking place. These are the things uh, that are described here about this man, Epaphroditus. And all five of these descriptions communicate dignity, which is intended to elevate Epaphroditus in the eyes of the Philippian church who would be reading this. Now, I want you to note, again, the difference between Paul and Epaphroditus. Paul is called by God to be his apostle, to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And in doing so, he'd preached many times. He'd established churches. He trained up leaders. He stood before kings and rulers and suffered many times. Epaphroditus had been chosen by the Philippian church to be responsible, to take a bag of money collected by the church and to get it to Paul and then to minister to him. And he had fulfilled his responsibility. Yet, they are brothers 
and fellow workers and fellow soldiers together. And friends, don't ever underestimate your role in the body of Christ. Again, there can be a disconnect. Oh, there's only certain really important roles in the church. No, there are all sorts of roles in the church, and they are all important. And we must get this out of our head. No matter how small or insignificant your role or your gift may be, no matter if it's something that most people don't even see. Yes, for the gospel advance, to advance where we live, leaders must be faithful to lead. We understand that. But laymen and laywomen must be faithful to serve. They both go hand in hand. Both are necessary for the impact of the gospel where we live. Now, friends, these five statements would be wonderful on a tombstone of a faithful citizen of heaven. Wouldn't you want to be known as a brother, a co-worker, a fellow soldier, a messenger, and a minister? Well, he is a man of godly character. Secondly, he's a man of genuine concern. Notice verse 26, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And there's two words that describe his genuine concern. Let's look now at the first one. He is homesick. It says he's longing for you all. What does it mean to long? Well, this idea of longing is the same word that Paul uses in chapter 1, verse 8. Notice what it says. If you have your Bibles, look there. Philippians 1, 8. For God is my witness. This is Paul now speaking of the Philippian church. God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. It's a yearning. But it's an affectionate yearning. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Here's what it, what it says and how it's used again. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, I love and I long for you. This is the participation that we have as the body of Christ. There is affection. There is love. There is a longing. And so Epaphroditus is expressing to Paul his longing for his friends, for his church. And so this idea of homesickness is not someone who is feeling homesick because they don't like where they are, they can't stand the food or the accommodations and can't wait to get back home. I know sometimes that's the word that is used to describe that. No, this is the kind of homesickness that is rooted in the love and affection for the people he loves. And friends, this is what I experience when God calls me to, to leave our country for a time and minister to Bolivians or Ukrainians. The, the ministry is hard. It's fruitful. It's wonderful. And I'm committed to it. But in doing so, I long to be back with my church family. I long to be back with my wife. I long to be back with my immediate family. Why? Because there's love. There's affection. Is that how you feel when you're drawn away from fellowshipping with your local church family? Do you long to be back with them? Do you long to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ? 
Or is it just like, well, I got to go to church, you know, I want to be there? Or, or do you long to be there because you've, you've knit these relationships? You've spent time cultivating them. This is what Paul is eager for us to see. He's a, a man of genuine concern. He is homesick. Secondly, he is distressed. He's distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, what's remarkable here is the one who was sick almost to the point of death is the one who is concerned about the anxiety of others. <laughs> and most of the people who are laying on the bed dying are not necessarily concerned about what other people are thinking about them. They're concerned about what? Living. But here he is concerned about them. We don't see self-pity, do we? We see love and concern. The word distressed here is the same word used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It describes him as being in agony. Distressed, in agony over his situation. And this is where Epaphroditus is, is, is living right now. You see, even in his sickness, Epaphroditus, having the mind of Christ, is like Jesus, more concerned to consider others as more important than himself, so much so that he's concerned about their anxiety for him. Now, of course, Jesus was obedient to death. Epaphroditus was obedient to the point of death. Friends, are you genuinely concerned for your fellow Christian brothers and sisters? When a prayer request is shared, and you say, I'm going to pray, do you pray? Do you call them? Do you visit them? Do you share your resources with them? Do you share yourself with them? Are you bearing one another's burdens? You see, Epaphroditus was a man of godly character that spilled out into being a man of genuine concern for the body of Christ. But he was also a man of gospel commitment. Verse 27, indeed, he was ill, near the point of death. Now, just how sick was Epaphroditus? Paul says he was sick, nearly, so that he nearly died. In fact, he mentions his severe condition three times, in verse 26, in verse 27, and in verse 30. Now, look at verse 30, if you would, where Paul says this. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In other words, Epaphroditus was so committed to his gospel mission that he was willing to risk his life to complete the mission. He nearly died for the work of Christ. Now friends, that's commitment. And it's a wonderful example for us to challenge us about our commitment to Christ. Are we willing to die for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing to die for the sake of gospel advancement? Are we willing to suffer hardship? Are we willing to endure persecution? Are we willing to face opposition? Are we willing to work our, our, out our salvation with fear and trembling? Are we willing to sacrifice our time and our talents and our ties so that we can serve the body of Christ? Are we willing to adjust our schedule for gospel ministry? 
Are we willing to drop what we are doing because a brother or sister, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier in the faith is in crisis and needing help? Are we willing to get up early on Sunday mornings to help clean the church for a Sunday services? See, God may not be calling you to die for your faith today, but he is challenging all of us to a gospel commitment that moves us beyond passive participation and into an active, purposeful service for his glory. He's not saying walk out and die, but he's saying be willing to suffer, be willing to endure, be willing to struggle for the advancement of the gospel ministry, be willing to be inconvenienced, be willing to get up a little earlier, be willing to stay a little bit later, Be willing to step in when you see a need, although you had something else planned. See, this is what happens when we are united together. This is what happens when we have the mind of Christ. We have our own concerns, but we are considering the needs of others. Now, there's two things specifically that he says now. Verse 27, indeed he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, right? How did Paul's fellow soldiers survive this near-death illness? Well, we're not given all the details, but what we are told is that God had mercy on him. Now, how did that happen? How did that take place? Was he given medicine to help cure his illness? Was he restored because of prayer? Did he experience a divine miracle apart from medicine? Was it a combination of all three? We're just not told. But what we are told is that God sovereignly acted in mercy to him, however that played out. Epaphroditus needed God's mercy in his time of weakness. But secondly, God had mercy on Paul. Because it says, as we continue on here, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Literally, sorrow heaped upon sorrow. See, God had mercy on Epaphroditus, but also on Paul. If Epaphroditus had died serving Paul, it would have brought him great sorrow. This is a wonderful interaction, friends, between Paul's theology, and his personal experience that should encourage us. Let me explain. Paul had already said earlier in this letter, for for to me to live is what? Christ. And to die is what? For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. I mean, come on, let's do this. Be willing to die. Be willing to die. And yet at the same time, Here he says, if if Epaphroditus died, I would have sorrow upon sorrow. You see, you stand strong in your theology, but you still care for the body of Christ, right? Good theology keeps us anchored to God, but it doesn't remove our humanity. It doesn't remove our affections. They work hand in hand. Paul can sorrow at the loss of a fellow soldier, while at the same time be comforted by the fact that to die is gain. 
Clearly, Paul was personally distressed and concerned by the gravity of Epaphroditus' illness. And he glorifies God for his mercy toward his brother in Christ as well as on his own heart. So, having the mind of Christ, where we are looking on the interest of others in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves, this mind of Christ is intertwined with good theology and practical humanity. And our hearts want both to please the Lord and at the same time consider our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, does the fact that God had mercy on Paul move you? Are you aware of the mercies of God for your every day? I mean, just listen to Scripture. Paul tells us that God is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2.4. Jeremiah tells us that his mercies are new every morning, Lamentations 3.22. David expresses it well, right? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I mean, this mercy of God is a care that is brought on those who are his own. It's a wonderful thing, friends. And now Paul expresses once again his desire to send Epaphroditus home to Philippi. And he gives two reasons. The Philippians' joy, they will receive Epaphroditus and know that he is well, and his own anxiety for both Epaphroditus and the Philippian church. See, there's a natural anxiety that's going on here. I mean, just just hear this. It's a little bit humorous. Paul wouldn't have to worry. Epaphroditus, or sorry, the Philippian church could stop worrying, and Epaphroditus wouldn't worry about the Philippians worrying about him. There's a lot of worrying going on here. But that's what happens because we're human and we struggle and we suffer and we endure and we work and we want to honor the Lord. Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi. But in doing that, he's now going to instruct the Philippian church to receive Epaphroditus. He says in verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Did you notice those two instructions that Paul gives the Philippian church? To receive him in the Lord with all joy and to honor such men. Why would Paul have to tell the Philippian church how to receive Epaphroditus? Doesn't that seem rather strange? It's like telling a parent, you know what? Receive your child. Well, duh. I'm going to receive my child. No, no, no. We really want to make sure that you receive your child. Well, we must see that Paul's words are not from a 21st century mindset, but from the culture of Paul's day, which was often a shame culture. And Epaphroditus was chosen and sent by the Philippian church as their messenger to minister to Paul. Now, we don't know all the details, but we do know that somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus got sick. Either this happened along the journey, and people helped him to get to his destination, or it happened while he was in Rome. And the point is that Epaphroditus had fallen short of their expectations. 
He was able to bring the gift safely to Rome and give it to Paul, but he was unable to be present for ongoing ministry to Paul in his need. In fact, the opposite happened. Epaphroditus became a burden and a responsibility for Paul and whoever other companions that might have been there. Let me just share with you a couple of examples from my own experience. I remember one time um, I was teaching an Antioch initiative through Slavic Gospel Association in the city of Ufa, Russia. And this is probably the third time I was there. And I can remember I was teaching on preaching during this time to about 30 pastors or so. And I remember the first day of teaching, toward the end of the day, I just started to feel really, really bad. And my temperature rose. And it got up to about 102. And so rather than go out in the evening into other people's homes or wherever they were going to go, I just said, you know, I'm going to eat a meal and I'm just going to stay here in the room. And my idea was I just want to sleep See if I can sleep off this fever. And so I woke, I went to bed probably around 8 o'clock and woke up like really, really early in the morning, like 5.30 or something like that, so I could make sure I was prepared for that day. I felt a little bit more refreshed. I still wasn't feeling the greatest, but it was sufficient. I was able to get some, some things figured out and get into the classroom. And as the day wore on, my temperature continued to rise. And so the same thing happened. And so for like three days running, this all was going on. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, okay, Lord, I don't know why this is happening. I'm going to find a way to fight through this so I can continue to do what you've called me to do here. You have to kind of know where this threshold of enough is enough is, right? So you're just trying to fight this thing through. And God gave unusual grace and strength to see that week out. And quite frankly, many people didn't even know anything about the fact that I was feeling sick. The point here is this, sometimes gospel ministry is hard work, and things happen that you don't expect. Another time, I was in uh, La Paz doing a Simeon Trust training, again to pastors, and it was a really good turnout, and we had done the first night, it was the next day, second night, and I, I started to teach and finish the session that I was doing, and I just started to feel really, really bad, and... Um, I won't get into the details of all that happened. Let's just say it wasn't good. And I went back to the place that I was staying. It was in the pastor's home. And for the next two days, I was in bed sweating. And the pastor would come in every now and then to check on me. He would try and bring me some chicken noodle soup or whatever I felt I needed. He was willing to go and to get. And uh, fortunately, I had brothers that were able to help with the seminar. So that I obviously, I wasn't going to be there. I ended up being a burden to these people because they were having to do all these extra things on my behalf. You can't control sickness. You can't control it. These things happen. And I remember this pastor, uh, Ramiro is his name, and he would check on me, and then at the end I would be like, I'm so sorry, Ramiro, for all that had happened. He's like, oh, brother, it's totally okay. God is in control. When are you coming back? You know, there, 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 was, there was a welcoming of the burden. This is what happens among the body of Christ. And there's a sense in which we have something like this taking place here. It's likely that Epaphroditus' sickness was a burden to Paul and those around, but Paul wants to make sure that the Philippian church doesn't feel shame or that their chosen servant or messenger has failed to minister to him. 
No, he wants them to know that Epaphroditus has been faithful to serve the work of Christ, risking his life nearly to the point of death, and as such, he could receive a hero's welcome. And with that burden on his shoulders, Epaphroditus may have been feeling shame that he wasn't able to fulfill his commission to Paul. So here we are. First of all, receive him with joy, we're told. Why? Because Epaphroditus is my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier in ministry. We've been knit together by his coming. And Paul is responding in such a way as to lift Epaphroditus up in the estimation of the Philippian church that he is an encouragement to Paul's heart. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever failed in ministry? Maybe you taught a Sunday school lesson that you want to forget. You ever been there? Maybe you played an instrument for Sunday service that sounded like a clanging cymbal and you weren't playing the drums. Maybe the live stream where the sound didn't quite reach its fullest potential. Maybe you had the opportunity to speak to someone about the gospel. And you just kept on drawing blanks. And the verses that you knew that you knew, you couldn't recall them. It just fell flat. Maybe you just preached at Gateway and you feel like you completely messed it up. I remember my first ever sermon in the context of a church. It was in Anderson, South Carolina. And I was speaking in a little church on Jesus feeding the 5,000. I was sweating. My knees were knocking. I'm not exaggerating. And looking back, what I was saying from the scriptures was total spiritualizing and a distortion of the text. I said something like, we're called to be like the loaves and fishes where God could divide us and use us for his glory. It was awful. It was terrible exegesis. But the people who listened were kind, were encouraging. They lifted my spirits, and the pastor continued to allow me to preach on other occasions. I have a great love and affection for that church. I often wonder what would have happened if they had been discouraging. Would I have been full of despair? Would I have given up on what I thought was my calling? Clearly, they were thinking of me and my development. Friends, it's not unusual for brothers and sisters in Christ to personally fail and fall short in some kind of service for Christ. And what Paul models for us here is one who is thinking beyond only himself, but looking to others, in this case, to both Epaphroditus and the Philippian church. Let's just summarize what we've... No, I'm not, not, not there, I'm sorry. Paul could have said, it will work out for itself. In other words, I'll just let it ride. But he doesn't do that. It's not his way. He is building up and encouraging Epaphroditus as well as counseling the Philippian church to receive him with joy. He calls them to receive Epaphroditus with hearts full of joy, which means they're unmixed, they're unreserved, for them to receive him wholeheartedly. They receive him with 
joy. Secondly, receive him with honor. Notice what it says, verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. So Paul now continues to seek to elevate Epaphroditus. And he calls him and identifies him and puts him in a special class. Honor such men. In other words, he is the kind of man you want as an example for your flock. Now you might think, you may have heard, yes, he got there with the money, but he got sick and he wasn't able to help Paul. He didn't do all the things that he was supposed to do. And Paul is now responding and saying, "Uh uh-uh. He's my brother. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. He's your minister. And he's saying, why is he an example? Because he was willing to risk his life for the work of Christ. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is not an unusual thing. Quite frankly, it's often something that we neglect to do. But I want you to see how Paul models this again in 1 Corinthians 16, and we're going to read verses 15 through 18. Here's what he says. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the, were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Right? To be subject to such as these. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. You know, often in the church, we're kind of really hesitant to give recognition. You recognize one, what's the implication? you're neglecting to recognize all these others, right? It's always a challenge, isn't it? Men like Epaphroditus and Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, they all need to be recognized. Why? Because of who they are and what they've been doing for gospel ministry. And this is reflective of Christ's words too. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Just listen as I read. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who were considered rulers and Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." You see, we as, as God's children, we go, we serve. We, we, we put ourselves in those places and we serve the Lord, but there is a rightful place for honor, for recognition, and for a, a, a God-centered praise of someone's efforts. Now, just in summary, Paul demonstrated the mind of Christ in that he was willing to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi He was Paul's brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. He had been sent to help Paul and assist him while he was in prison. But Paul, knowing Epaphroditus' character and his commitment to the gospel and his concern for his own church, releases him. He considers both Epaphroditus 
his need and the needs of the Philippian church above his own concerns. See, he has the mind of Christ. Epaphroditus demonstrates the mind of Christ by his affectionate longing for the Philippian church to know that he is okay. He didn't have email. He didn't have texting. The only way it could happen was, you know, by a message. But the best way to know that someone's okay is to actually physically be with them, especially when they've been close to death. So he's distressed that they may be anxious about him. He has the mind of Christ. The Philippian church are being challenged to have the mind of Christ by receiving Epaphroditus with joy and honor rather than some kind of a prejudice. He was their messenger and ministered Paul's need, and they should be thankful for God's mercy to Epaphroditus and that he was faithful to complete what was lacking in their service to Paul. He did. He served. He was faithful. I just want to bring all this to a close with really four application points, really, really simple. I mean, I want us to see the mind of Christ. It's not just some theoretical thing. It's putting others before yourselves. It's living life with this humility, considering others. So first of all, I think we're called here to lead with the mind of Christ. Whatever leadership there is going on in the context of the church, whether it's the elders, whether it's the sync team, whether it's ministry leaders, whether you're overseeing some area of ministry, maybe it's a small group or something like that, we are to lead with the mind of Christ. We must always be on the lookout that those who are working for gospel advancement are also being taken care of. That they're not burning out that they have the support and the resources that they need. And if someone needs a break, if someone needs some time to rest, we seek to accommodate that as soon as possible. This is leadership seeking to apply the mind of Christ. Secondly, we are to serve with the mind of Christ. We all have personal needs, yet the mind of Christ helps us look outside of ourselves and moves us to serve. So many churches today are, come, here's what we can do for you. Look at all these things that we have. But the true church is not, it should not be drawn in by the pizzazz. The true church is where people are gathered and they say, what can I do? How can I serve? In what way can I help? Because they're putting others before themselves. We encourage, third, with the mind of Christ. Words of encouragement help to put the wind in our sails, right? Thank you for your contribution to the discussion at home group. It was really helpful. Let me just pause here. Simple, active participation is serving in the body of Christ. Coming and being a part of what's going on is serving in the body of Christ. It's a different kind of service, but you're contributing to what is necessary. Watching the kids today allowed my wife and I to sit together in church. Finally! Words of encouragement. Words of thankfulness. All right? Put wind in our sails. If it were not for you stopping to talk to me, I might have given up. I might have just walked away. And we could go on here. 
encouragement with the mind of Christ. You see, as God's people, we put on the mind of Christ. We're thinking of others rather than ourselves. And it affects these aspects of what's going on in the church, our leadership, our service, our encouragement. And, and fourth here is this, honor with the mind of Christ. I'm going to do something I don't normally do. But under the circumstances, as we've, as we've looked at this passage, it only seems fitting. And I do it at the risk of leaving people out, so please forgive me if I don't mention you. But there are a number of people here at Gateway that need to be recognized. So if I mention your name, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm just going to ask you to stand up briefly. Kathy Sousa. Nolan Wu. Sharon Waldemar, I don't think she's here. Yulia Vakulin. They are all part of the rotation that comes early on Sunday to clean the bathrooms. Thank you, you may be seated. Aren't you thankful? That's, that's, that's a lowly task that serves the body of Christ. Andrei Grasimov, George Mathai, Cheyenne Wu, and I might be missing someone. Stan? Cheyenne, is he here? These guys together, primarily Andre, but these guys fill in, picks up people on a Sunday morning, brings them to church, takes them back, all for the service of the Lord. Thank you for what you do. Thank you. You deserve to be recognized. You deserve to be honored. Jane Pogey, is she in here? In the back, Jane, stand up if you would, please. Kathy Cam, is she here? No? Well, you all know who Kathy is. Debbie Ward, stand up, please. These ladies are the backbone of our children's ministries. They work hard behind the scenes to make sure your children are well taken care of, coordinating teachers, making sure curriculum is distributed. Thank you for the work that you do. You deserve the recognition. You deserve the honor that you are due. These guys are going to hate me, but they're not all in here. John Prince, John Walton, Alex Lopes, Pete Lenway. Clearly, they're not listening to the sermon out there. Um, Peter Tamita. Uh, these are all your security team, who, by the way, came to us as elders to say, we need to have security here at church, and we'll figure out what needs to happen and we'll figure out the systems. There is, there is things in place that you do not know of that if someone were to come that shouldn't be here, these guys are ready to go into action. No, there is not a trap door up here, okay? Just so you know that. But these guys are doing this stuff for the sake of gospel advancement, for your benefit, for your protection. They don't often get recognized. Why? Because they're people who are working behind the scenes. Yes, sir? Yes, Chris Close also. Chris, stand up. Thank you. 
I knew that. Hey, here's Kathy. Everyone say hi, Kathy. There you go. I know. It's a, how often do you come on a Sunday morning? You walk in and pastor's preaching and everyone recognizes you. What is going on, she's thinking. But see, these are people who work behind the scenes, who get the job done. Elia Phillips. I'm often guilty of neglecting her in a list like this. Primarily because I feel at times it's self-serving. But Elia serves the Lord behind the scenes by virtue of what she does in her own merit. As a woman of God, using her gifts and passions, but she also has to live with me. And yet she supports me in ways so that I can serve you better. This has been a very long week and a long weekend. And last night she knew I was tucked up in my office and I was doing different things. And She's texting me, how can I pray for you? How can I help you? How can I serve you? And in doing that, she's serving you. You understand that? So, Elia, I love you. Thank you. You're the only one I'm going to kiss. So, <laughs> I know. Chris Close is really upset by that, but that's a whole other thing. Anyway. But friends, look. We, we honor with the mind of Christ. See, even if, if, you're, if you're sitting there feeling like, well, how come he's not honoring me? That's evidence that you're battling with the mind of Christ because you should be thinking about others before yourself. Your turn will come. But as I was reflecting on this, so much of what happens in the body of Christ happens in ways that we don't see it. And see, Paul here is seeking to elevate someone like the people we've mentioned here that's not front and center, but is serving faithfully, using their energy and their labor for the advancement of the gospel. Brother, sister in Christ, fellow worker, fellow soldier, our messenger, our minister. May we all work to be that individual, not for self-glory, but for the glory of Christ. Lord, help us today to put on the mind of Christ, to follow this compelling example that we have been given here by Paul, to flesh out for us what this looks like. Lord, may the mind of Christ motivate us to love one another and to serve one another, and Lord, to glorify you as we seek to be a part of the advancement of the gospel. You are worthy of our worship, Lord. You are worthy to be praised. For your church is not simply about the guy who's standing in the pulpit or those who have been called to lead as elders, those who have been given areas of ministry responsibility, or you've called all of us to serve you. And Lord, may we do so with this mind of Christ. May we do so with humility, putting our needs and the needs of others, Lord, before you for your glory. May we do this now, Lord, 
because we are called your children. Lord, to be faithful to you, we ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.